0: Na'mo tassa bhaka arahato sammasam buddhasa Na'mo tassa bhaka arahato sammasam buddhasa Na'mo tassa bhaka vato arahato sammasam buddhasa buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅkhaṁ The plan is for us to be closing the retreat tomorrow morning. Lumpur will join us for the uh, morning sitting 8.30 to 9.30 and then offer a few reflections after that. Hopefully we'll manage to pipe that through to the kitchen so those of you on kitchen duty will be uh, able to to listen as well. And then they will have a little ceremony He'll offer a few reflections and then we'll have the... Uh, asking for forgiveness in the closing ceremony then. So this will be the last of these readings, mm-hmm. the finale. And so I thought I would read this, uh, the, the last of these, of Lompol teachings on dependent origination in uh, the, this anthology collection here. It's originally from the book The Way It Is. And this is uh, Dependent Origination 5, Letting Go of Desire. The arising of dukkha is due to the grasping of desires and the insight is that there is this origin or arising and that desire should be let go of This is the second noble truth, it is the insight knowledge of letting go. Some people think that all I teach is, whatever happens, let go, but the teaching involves a real investigation of suffering, insight into letting go occurs through that understanding. So letting go doesn't come from a desire to get rid of suffering, that's not not letting go. vibhava or the desire to get rid of, is quite subtle, but wanting to get rid of our defilements is another kind of desire. Letting go is not a getting rid of or a putting down with any aversion. Letting go means being able to be with what is displeasing without dwelling in aversion. You'll still be attached. Fear, aversion, all this is grasping, clinging. Dispassion is acceptance and awareness of things as they are, not creating anything. Letting go of the aversion to what is ugly or unpleasant. So, letting go is not a trick phrase coined as a way of dismissing things, but a deep insight into the nature of things. Letting go is therefore being able to bear with something unpleasant and not be caught up in anger and aversion. Dispassion is not depression. So also letting go um in a way if if you reflect on it things are going anyhow so, so it's uh that's the the nature of anything that's come into being is naturally coming apart it that which integrates disintegrates so letting go is is not so much um that you really had an option to keep it it's more like there's a recognition of this is going this is this is on its way and so it's in a sense, letting go of the sense of ownership the, the, or the the additional feeling of this could be kept, this could be held, this could be maintained um, and so that it's a, in a way it's a shifting the attitude towards that which is already in a state of change and transformation that nothing is holdable or ownable or, or uh, keepable uh, if such words exist <laughs> uh, and so that the uh, letting go, uh, in its essence, isn't it? I did own this, and now I'm choosing to to give it up. But in a way, in, in its deepest sense, letting go, there isn't a personal action that's taking place. It's rather like when the when the autumn comes, then a leaf falls off a tree. It's like the the tree isn't kind of consciously letting go of the leaf. It's just those natural changes have come about, and the the leaf falls uh, away or like with the in the springtime the certain flowers blossom for a while and then they the the blossoms come to an end and then they drop off like the magnolia flowers they they are they're blooming now but then they, they slowly fade and they they uh, they drop off when they've had when they've had their day so that uh, it's it's helpful in terms of, of considering contemplating letting go that it's a bit of a misnomer or a bit misphrased because it's not that we really had an actual opportunity or possibility of anything to to be kept or any uh, anybody who could keep anything and then also his um that little book that we handed out to everybody gave uh, that meta as acceptance and that's a, a again this is a theme of of um that uh Letting go is to do with uh, acceptance and awareness of things as they are. Uh, it's a um, uh, not dwelling in aversion. Letting go means being able to be with what is displeasing without dwelling in aversion. So, and that's the uh, one of the standard ways that Lumpur would represent meta, not dwelling in aversion. So, there's a there's a, a a loving kindness and, and a full acceptance of of the way things are, even if there's something that's unpleasant, that is uh, in the field of experience. How many of you dismiss and refuse to acknowledge the unpleasantness of the functions of your own bodies? There are certain functions of the human body that aren't beautiful, that we do not mention in polite society. We use all kinds of euphemisms and ways of politely excusing ourselves at the appropriate moment, because we don't want the perception of ourselves to be connected with those functions. We want our presence or our image to be connected with something pleasing, interesting or attractive. We want our photograph taken with flowers in an attractive setting, not on the toilet. We want to disguise the natural processes of life, cover up the wrinkles, dye the hair, do everything to make ourselves look younger, because aging is not attractive. As we grow older, we lose what is beautiful and attractive. Our reflection is to be really aware of sickness and death, that which is attractive and unattractive the way things are in this realm of sensory consciousness. Being an entity with sense organs which contact objects, they may be anything, from the most beautiful and pleasing to the most hideous and ugly. We experience feelings. Feeling, Vedana, entails the alternatives of the pleasant, the painful and the neutral. This applies to all the senses, taste, touch, sight, hearing, smell and thought. So before going further into that, any questions, thoughts?
1: Yes. Um, I just in terms of letting go, I found that uh, more difficult is to let go not of the actual experience, because it's just how it is, <laughs> it's not great, but usually the mind makes something that it could be better, uh, like I could change it somehow, so mm-hmm. it always has some hope for the future, so basically it uses present material as a base of what I can do out of it, mm-hmm. uh, and tries to uh, and, and to let go of your future, what you could become, possess, like all these combinations of how you could mingle real world to make it nice and beautiful. It seems that like, to go of these ideas is even harder than to go of the <laughs> current
0: experience. You know, uh, as I've often said, each of us is sort of conditioned in different ways. Our, our minds uh, um, have those particular patterns. And so for some people, it might be all about rearranging the past and, and uh, rewriting the past Dwelling on that, but you know, the the mind says, "Oh, you know, how to improve things." But the, if you see that's a trait, uh, a tendency of the mind, and get you know, get to know that, and and then you can reflect on it and say, "Okay, how can the Dhamma be improved in the future?" Ah, right. You know, kind of, so, so you you use the act of reflection or wise reflection to sort of dismantle or, or disempower those those uh, those habits, and just to get to know. Um, how the, the mind works, and, and just to be able to name it, oh, you know, here's Evgenia improving the universe, again. <laughs> it's like this. And so you're not blaming yourself or ha- you know, hating that habit, but just recognizing you know, that that's how it is. Uh, many years ago when I was leading a 10-day retreat here, there was this, uh, um, this gentleman who was on the retreat. Uh, he was a, a um, Japanese-American, and um, he was about 75, 77 years old, and um, <clears throat> and so he uh, uh, came in for the, it was in the era when he had individual interviews, <laughs> rather than group interviews, there was less people on retreats in those times. So I was chatting with him, he said, you know, my mind is just thinking about the future all the time, you know, I just can't stop thinking about the future, and I assumed, okay, this guy's in his mid to late 70s, he's worried about death, so I could launch into this uh, this spiel about about fear of death and worrying about the future, and he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not worrying, I'm planning, <laughs> after I kind of gone on for about five minutes about uh, you know, fear of death and so on. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm planning, yeah, I've, got, I've got ideas and things I want to do, and and so we, we talked for a while, and I oh, thought, this is unusual, because you, uh, mostly when I mean, older people, they, they also their mind dwells a lot on the past, and you know, reminiscences of when they were younger and so on. And so, and after talking with this fellow, after 10 minutes or so, I really couldn't figure him out. I thought, well, so he's, he's thinking a lot about the future, but he's not at all worried about dying, uh, but his mind is is is, is uh, fixed on, on planning and doing stuff. And then I found out that his career had been in the newspaper industry. And he worked for this newspaper in Chicago that had three editions a day. <laughs> had a kind of early morning one, a midday one, and an evening one. And so you're always trying to think you know, the two, two editions ahead. You know, you're, and so oh, that's why he's, he's, uh, he's spent his whole career thinking... You know, uh, for, for the next edition, or the, next, the edition after that, and so that his the momentum of his uh, his conditioning through his career is planning for the future and planning for the next edition, planning, 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 and so I thought, oh, okay, that's why his uh, his mind is working in that particular way. So that we get familiar with our own uh, character and the, the the patterns that are there, We're not criticizing them or blaming them or. or Inflating them with something special or, or good, but just getting to know that. So, in terms of a, a Sapurisa, that's the Atanyuta, getting to know your own character, and then working with that. So, and then just to, you can, if you just experiment with a phrase like, "Oh, here is Evgenia redesigning the, yeah, redesigning the future." That's what this is. And then just see what the effect of that is. Letting go of possibilities. Okay. So, Vedana. I use that particular word, that kunda, as the concept for all that that, uh, attraction and repulsion. We are experiencing Vedana. We are aware of the pleasant, the painful, the beautiful, the ugly, the neutral, (coughs) through the body or through what we hear, smell, taste, touch or think. Even memories can be attractive. We can have memories that are pleasing, unpleasant or neutral. And if we are heedless and operate from avijjā, self-view, the unquestioned assumption assumption that I am, the attractive, unattractive and neutral, are interpreted with desire. I want the beautiful. I want the pleasant. I want to be happy and successful. I want to be praised. I want to be appreciated. I want to be loved. I don't want to be persecuted, unhappy, sick. I don't want to be looked down on or criticised. I don't want ugly things around me. I don't want to look at the ugly. I don't want to be around the unpleasant. Consider the functions of our body. We all know that these functions are just part of nature, but we don't want to think of them as being, as being ours. I have to urinate, but I would not want to be known in history as sumeto the urinator. <laughs> sumeto, the abbot of Amravati, that's alright. When I write my autobiography, It'll be filled with things like the fact that I was a disciple of Ajahn Chah, about how sensitive I was as a little child, innocent and pure, maybe a little mischievous now and then, but I don't want to be seen as a cupid doll. Uh, But in most uh, uh, biographies, the unpleasant functions of the body are just dismissed. We're not to go around thinking that we should identify with these functions, but just to begin to notice the tendency not to want to be bothered with them, or pay attention to them, and observe a lot of what is part of our life the way things are. In mindfulness, we open up our minds to this, to the whole of life, which includes the beautiful, the ugly, the pleasing, the painful and the neutral. So in our reflections on the Paticca Samuppada, we see it as connected to the second noble truth. This is where the sequence tanha upadana bhava is most helpful as a means of investigating grasping. Grasping in this sense can mean grasping because of attraction or because of aversion trying to get rid of, sorry, trying to get rid of. Grasping with aversion is pushing away. Running away is upadana, as is trying to get hold of the beautiful, possess it and keep it. Seeking after the desirable, trying to get rid of the undesirable. The more we contemplate and investigate upadana, the more the insight arises. Desire should be let go of. That's (coughs) pahatabhanti. In the second noble truth is explained that when suffering arises, it should be let go of. And then through the practice of letting go, and the understanding of what letting go really is, we have the third insight into the noble truth, desire has been let go of, pahi nanti. We actually know letting go. It's not a theoretical letting go, it's not a rejection of anything, it is the actual insight. In discussing the second noble truth, there are the statements, there is the origin of suffering, it should be let go of. And the third insight, it has been let go of. So that's uh, the pariyati is the study, there is the, uh, uh, you have these sort of three-part aspects of of the practice or the the cultivation of dhamma. Pariyati um, is the study or the intellectual uh, concept, there is the origin of suffering. Tukasamudaya, and then patipati, The way to practice with it uh, is it should be let go of uh, pahatabanti, and then the third insight is the pativeti, the, uh, the the realization it has been let go of. So there's there's three pariyati, patipati, and pativeta, uh, study, practice, and realization. They're like a a sort of the three legs of the the um, the the sort of foundation of, of dhamma, uh, dhamma practice, study, practice and realization. And that's what practice is all about, fulfilling those three. That applies to each of the noble truths. There is the statement, what to do about it, and then the result of that. The first noble truth, there is suffering, it should be understood, it has been understood. There are these three aspects of insight into the first noble truth. The second noble truth, there is the origin of suffering, samudaya, which is the grasping of desire, should be let go of, it has been let go of. The third noble truth, there is cessation, nirodha, it should be realized. And the third insight, it has been realized. The fourth noble truth, there is the eightfold path, the way out of suffering. It should be developed, and it has been developed. This is insight knowledge. When you think... What does an arahant know? It's this. He or she knows that there is suffering. Knows suffering should be understood. Knows when suffering has been understood. Knows the origin of suffering. Knows it should be let go of. Knows that it has been let go of, etc. These are the 12 insights. This is what we call arahantship. The knowledge of one who has those insights. But teacher Samuppada is a really close investigation of the whole process. It is grasping of the five khandhas that's the problem. The five khandhas are dhammas; uh, they are to be studied and investigated. They're just the way things are. They're not a self. They're impermanent, and to know, and to know this, sorry, uh, they are impermanent, and to know this is the way it is is to know the dhamma. So that uh, again, this is a very very frequent. Um, Theme for Lumpur to be t- talking about and the, using the Dhammachaka Sutta that we recited this morning, as we have done many times in the last uh, few months. Um, so that, uh, and one of the reasons I like to, to recite this and have this as a communal practice is so that you, you really get to know all those Uttapadis, the, the kind of the rhythm and the, the shape of those, uh, those words, that you, you get to, to have that set of concepts sort of there in your toolkit. You know, okay, the first one it's uh, parinyayanti, it is to be uh, understood, uh, uh, parinyatanti has been understood, pahatabhanti, it is to be let go of, pahinanti, it has been let go of, sacchikatabhanti, it needs to be realized, Sachikatanti has been realized, bhavetabhanti, it should be cultivated, yeah. bhavitanti, it has been cultivated. So that the, the repeated uh, recitation of those words and getting those Embedded into our memories, then you've got a toolkit. You've got those those qualities, those those principles to hand, and so that they are like not just a toolkit in concept, but you're actually <laughs> carrying it around with you. You've got the tools with you, and you know how to use the screwdrivers or the spanners and, and such like for for the particular tasks. And so it's one of the the aspects of chanting. It's not just a devotional act, but it's developing your set of of skillful means, your toolkit, so that you've got the 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 say the things that are useful necessary uh, to work with the uh, different states of mind different aspects of experience uh, from from moment to moment day by day and so that then even though it can seem a bit technical the the, you know, the four truths of, the four truths and their three aspects oh, not, not not more lists but <laughs> it's uh, it, it it has a purpose it has a, a great value and also having the, that three part uh, say, way of developing the practice, having the concept, knowing what to do, uh, and then that uh, uh, having the work having been done, and then recognizing the, the effect of the practice having been carried out. So, pariyati, study, patipati, the, the, uh, the practice or the work that needs to be done, the task involved, and then pativeda, the realization, the task having been done. What's the effect of the task having been done? Any questions, thoughts? Take your opportunity, yes. This is the last chance you'll (laughs) have. Go ahead.
2: Why the chanting is in Pali? And why it's like singing? And why not have Dhammashe in English instead of chanting?
0: Uh, Well... Um, because that's we are Theravādins, and this is the way of the elders, and that's the way the elders have always done it. The uh, Buddha. I would suspect the, the um, one of the reasons why the Pāli Canon is so repetitive is because things were recited and that you and that if you're just changing one word for each paragraph it's much easier if your each paragraph is completely new and fresh so the the um the whole method of chanting and reciting the teachers that sort of goes way back to the earliest times and also if you if you memorize it and you have these uh, the, the sound of it the rhythm of it then it could it's um often easier to remember in that way also, it's a it's a, a communal practice of chanting together. So in the in the Buddha's time, then that was how the teacher and the, uh, taught the student was chanting together, and that the student would would recite together with the teacher, and then the teacher was okay. Now you don't do it on your own, and then they would they go back and forth like that. So that's because they didn't have anything written down. Nothing was written down for the first four hundred years, so that. Um, that was the only way that you learnt the teachings, was through that rote, uh, rote learning and recitation. So the exact sound um, that we have in the chanting, the Thai style of chanting, it might be slightly different from the Burmese style or the uh, the uh, Cambodian style or the Sri Lankan style, they're all slightly, slightly different, but that, uh, that methodology of reciting the teachings that you have um, uh all, all you know throughout the Buddhist world also in the northern Buddhist world the Tibetan, uh, uh, in Tibetan tradition in Japan in China uh, Korea you know all of the different Buddhist traditions they have these um, processes of uh, of recollecting the teachings through chanting and uh, and one of the the uh, uh, rather than having a, like a Dhamma study session and just repeating the words and getting uh, and uh, say, reciting them like that, it means that you remember them more easily. They're, they're, more, they're, they're there to hand. And you can use those particular phrases um, as a, a, uh, very easily as a theme for contemplation. But in other Buddhist traditions, they don't do that. Like you, if you go to uh, places like um, Gaia House or uh, Spirit Rock Center, they don't chant. They meditate. Here, listen to Dhamma talks, but uh, they they don't have a devotional practice. There's no chanting.
2: Didn't Buddha say not to sing, uh, like um, make the Dhamma like a, a more like music? Because when chanting, sometimes sounds like a, a singing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, He said that uh, not to sing or not to, that also that we can, uh, uh, someone can uh, teach the Dharma in their own language. Mm -hmm. Because I see that it can become like uh, um, people come and uh, they don't understand what is said and uh, maybe they can feel something but um, maybe if it's spoken uh, and in, in a language that they can understand and uh, uh, maybe the same things <laughs> repeatedly but, but uh, um, it can go maybe deeper in their heart.
0: It can, it, it, it varies. Uh, I mean when we when we first we established in establishing this community in this country in the 70s and 80s, none of the, tran- chan- the chanting was translated, it was all in Pali. So we slowly started doing more and more of the translations, of the, the, the chanting translated. So none of it, there was no English at all when we began. And so that we, as a community, started to develop that back in the early 80s, I think and so what we have now is quite a lot of it uh, is in english but also uh, it was uh, there was a, there was a movement in the sangha um, to because of the feeling it's getting a bit too musical to chant it all on one note and that uh, there was a, and so one of the, the the senior monks had suggested this was uh, uh, the best way of of um chanting uh, was to have it all on one note so it'd be like Yo so pakawa arahang samma cha chara, And so, um, one of the sisters, who had been a musician before she was ordained, begged Najan Sametha, please. <laughs> this is really depressing. <laughs> this is like, this is a, a way to flatten the heart. And so, and so that. Um, so she'd been a musician, so, so her name was Sister Abbasra and so she was the one who developed the three note system that we have, so that she requested permission. So she took the, 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 the Thai um, phraseology, which is far more musical, it's about about seven or eight different notes that are, are used uh, in, the, in the Thai chanting system, and it's much more colorful. Um, so she trimmed it down to three, so the home note, one up, one down. Um, and then it was her, her skill that then systematized the, 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 the what they call cantillation, the marking the chanting up for how to do the, the three-note system. And that also worked not in just in the Pali but also in the English as well. So we've inherited that, her, her skill and, and diligence. Uh, but yeah, the, the, we did try doing it on one note for the sake of having it less musical. But the emotional effect of that was not not pleasing to many many people. It was it was actively depressing. <laughs> I was here at the time. I was part of it. So. I was quite glad to have her 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 contribution. Uh, but going back to your question, so there there was two brothers, Brahmin, uh, two Brahmins who were brothers who asked the Buddha if they could put the Dhamma teaching into the um, the kind of uh, uh, musical form of the the brahminical chanting, and the Buddha said, "No, they couldn't do that." So that uh, so that uh, he didn't want it um, put into that kind of um, uh, sort of stylized brahminical chanting form. Um, it's not exactly clear how how that sounded, but there is that in the, in the in the Vinaya. There's a record of these two brothers saying, "Can we?" Um, put the, the the teachings into this this form. It's probably uh, like some of the the chanting that you do get, uh, or like uh, bhajans in the Indian tradition, that you know, very very musical, or very stylized, and um, and so that. And what happens with musical forms? Is, and you you do find this. There's a certain kind of funeral chanting in the here in Thailand. That is, it's so stylized, you can't actually understand any of the words. It's, it's very, it's like a speciality of a particular monastery or particular group. And it's like, is this Kusala Dhamma? Kusala Dhamma. It's like, what the heck is this? But it's, it's like really special. And if you, you want to have a really super duper funeral, you get these monks to come along and do their, their kind of special form of chanting. But you really can't understand a word. I can't. Huh? So then you know, I think that's, I suspect, with all, due, with all due respect, that's exactly the kind of thing the Buddha was saying no, don't do that. Because the 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 sound of the word is uh, lost in in all the decoration. So the point of the chanting is that you can uh, the, the words are clear. You can remember what they are, and you've got them as a a reference for you. And it also has that uh, it's a communal act. You're joining your voices together um, and say uh, energetically. Uh, you're listening to each other. You're joining your voices together and. And ex- expressing your respect and, and uh, appreciation for these particular teachings.
2: Venerable, sometimes uh, I, I heard the Venerable speak um, uh, before Amunadana, at Amunadana, uh, just a few words from the heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were very strong. You know, and uh, then uh, uh, chanting, but you know, I, I would like to see more of that.
0: <laughs> well, when you have your own monastery, you can do it exactly that <laughs> way. No, I
2: just when you me. are the
0: head nun, you can do it exactly how you like. <laughs> you know, like I'm people, not joking.
2: Yeah, people come and, and, uh, you know, and they don't hear the Dhamma from the heart, you know, the venerable, and that's a pity.
0: That's, uh, that's your point of view? Maybe some other beings agree. Maybe some other beings agree. Okay, so to continue. And so the grasping of the conditioned world as a self is based on delusion or ignorance of each other. The illusion of a self as being the five kundas. And because of that we live our lives based on ignorance. The volitional activities, Sankara, from their ignorance, interpret everything from I am and from the grasping of desires. The result is Jara Marna, aging and death. If I grasp the body as self, I quote unquote get old. My body is aging. He was fifty four at the time. <laughs> Eleven years younger than I am now, so uh, <laughs> hard to think of Lumpur at the fifty-four calling himself getting old. But, um, so this was 1988 that he gave this My body is aging; it's sagging and wrinkly. <laughs> at 65, I would say that's true as well. Yes. And the belief that I am getting old because the body is getting old is a kind of suffering. If there is no sense of self, there is no suffering. There's an appreciation of the body's aging. There's no feeling that there's anything wrong with the body getting old. That's what it's supposed to do, that's its nature. It is not me, it's not mine, and it's doing what it's supposed to do. Perfect, isn't it? I would be upset if it started getting younger. Eventually, I'd be back in nappies, and I'd have to go through everything again. Rather unlikely. Lumpur Sameda is always ready to let his imagination roam during his uh, Dhamma teaching. The thought, I am getting old, quote-unquote, isn't sorrowful. It's a conventional way of talking about the body. But if this is what I think I am, I am the body, this is my body, then ignorance conditions sankara and gives rise to many other problems. I'm getting old, I want to be young, I want to live a long life. Don't you call me an old man, you young whippersnapper. Why? Because of identifying with the body. And then, I'm going to die. <gasps> that's a morbid thing. Let's not even talk about death. Of course, we're all going to die. But that's far away. When you're young, you think of death as so far away. Let's enjoy life. But when anyone we know dies, or we nearly die, death can be very frightening. And all that is from attachment to the identity I am this body. And of course there are all the views, feelings, memories and, and biases that we have, Vedana, Sannyas, Sankara. We suffer not only from identification with the body, but also when we attach to the beautiful and to feelings. I want only the beautiful. I want only the pleasant. I don't want to see the ugly. I want to have beautiful music and no ugly sounds, only fragrant smells. We attach to what the world should be like, opinions about Britain, France, the USA. Attachments to these views, opinions and perceptions make up the Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, sequence of the five khandas, And we can attach to all that in terms of self. It's my view, what I think, what I want and I don't want, what should be and what shouldn't be. And from that illusion of self come grief, anguish, despair, depression, sorrow and lamentation. The insight into the second noble truth is that there is an origin to this suffering. It's not permanent. It's not absolutely always that something arises. The rising of dukkha is due to the grasping of desire. You can see desire because it is a dhamma, small d, it arises and ceases. You can see the desire that arises to seek the beautiful and pleasant on the sensual plane, through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. karma tanha is sensual desire. Sensual desire always wants some kind of pleasurable or at least exciting experience karmatana. You can see it in our movement of going towards and then grasping the sensory pleasures. Bhavatana is the desire to become. It's to do with wanting to become something. As we do not ultimately know who we are, our desire is to attain and achieve and become something. In this holy life the bhavatana can be very strong. You feel that you are here to attain and achieve enlightenment. It all sounds very good, but even the desire to become enlightened can come from this avicca, from this self-view. I'm going to get enlightened. I'm going to become the first American arahant. I'm fed up with this world. I want to get enlightened so that I will not have to be reborn again. I don't want to go through child again, childhood again. I don't want any of that. I want to become someone who doesn't have to be born anymore. That can be bhavatanna we They go hand in hand. In order to become something, you have to get rid of the things that you don't like and don't want. I'm going to get rid of my defilements and I want to get rid of my bad habits and get rid of my desires. All this sounds very righteous too. The defilements are bad. Get rid of them. And in Ed Lumpur speaking in that way, there's actually, he's sort of recounting patterns of thinking that he has uh, 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 referred to, he had as a, as a young monk, uh, uh, was, and that even uh, said... Uh, so Lumpur Chah from time to time uh, and when they were having a conversation once, uh, the young Ajahn Sumedha said, Lumpur, I'm absolutely determined this is going to be my last life, I've had it with this, this world, this is definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm totally resolved, I'm never going to get born again, I'm absolutely you know, fed up with the, the, uh, the, the human condition and the, the cycles of rebirth, so I'm, I'm absolutely uh, committed to this being my last lifetime. And uh, uh being the kind of person that he was, then picked up on the sort of Vibhavatana tone that <laughs> was there in the young Sumato Bhikkhu and he said, so you're going to leave us all behind Sumato? What about the rest of us? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to leave us all here and, uh, and abandon us? And it was one of those, is he joking? He's not joking. <laughs> He's joking. <laughs> He's not joking. <laughs> But that's what, what uh, he uh, he recounted Lumpur as saying, like, oh, don't you care about the rest of us? Are you going to leave us all behind? Because he could pick up that, you know, I'm fed up with this, I'm out of here. And that the, um, could, hmm, a little bit of vibhavatana in the wind. And uh, and so that, uh, but uh, you know, uh, Lumpur Samaita being the uh, astute and, uh, uh Thoughtful student noticed you know what Lumbarcha uh, said, and and his it was kind of a wisecrack, uh, you know, it's a joke, but also not a joke. <laughs> so it's a, a joke with a teaching woven uh, woven into it, and so that uh, he um, he began to see that there, oh, there's a, there's a bit of Vibhavatana that's come into my uh, my re- my resolution to towards enlightenment, and that uh, perhaps there's there's uh, uh, threads of uh, uh, negativity and aversion and the uh, desire to, to not be that become come into the picture. Uh, any thoughts, questions? Yes. So when letting go, I think it's always, for me, it becomes a lot of letting be actually. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Because when I always find the present moment or whatever is there, like we both have.
0: Yeah, letting be is is often a, a more accurate uh, way of of talking about it. Like like I was saying that the uh, the you know the just the the, the languaging of letting go, it's um, uh, it's based on the idea that there's a me who's holding on, and as the insight develops, it's like there's more and more of a recognition like, well, no thing can really ever be owned or. or or grasped, and there's no thing that can really own it or grasp it. So it's a, a figurative way of speaking, and that more letting be um, is just uh, attuning to that uh, the, the constant fluid process of experiencing. But also, uh, and I've said this many, many times, but I'll say it again, that when we talk about letting be or non-attachment, also it's non-attachment, your capacity to act and make choices is part of the way things are. So that when we talk about letting be or, or such, it can seem like a sort of dissociation or a passivity, but it, uh, it's, I feel it's really important to understand that it doesn't mean that. Because you know, letting go can be letting go of your hesitancy to do something that needs to be done, <laughs> if you follow what I mean. But, uh, you're, that our capacity to act, our, our intrinsic involvement in the 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 world the experiential field is part of the way things are so our ability to make choices is part of the way things are so sometimes the way that some teachers will talk about it like any kind of choice or any kind of doing is an intrusion or a disturbance of the way things are but i would say that's really missing so much of the the Dhamma teaching, that uh, it's missing the fact that the Buddha spent 45 years as a totally enlightened being, making a lot of choices and taking a lot of action, having a lot of initiative and um, being extraordinarily creative in in his actions and his uh, his teachings and the social structures that he set up and so forth, that uh, that's a lot of doing, (laughs) a lot of... Uh, engagement in, in, and involvement, but none of it was was driven by by self-view or conceit or, or desire, but rather uh, by by craving. But rather, uh, seeing the, the what's useful in particular situations and what might be beneficial to the 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 beings around. So to continue. Sorry. Yes.
1: Sorry, I, I always ask a lot of questions.
0: That's okay. That's what we're here for
1: wanted to say um, at, 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 at Hanam I think there is a quote from which is if you let go a little you get a little peace if you mm-hmm. let go a lot you get a lot of peace if you let go completely you get complete peace and I, I, I remember that we there was always a lot of uh, debate around, uh, around that uh-huh. and um, I think uh, in many ways a lot of uh, misunderstanding of what to let go really meant there was a certain sense that arose in some people of uh, fear in terms of well you know if I'm letting go and there was that sense that uh, of, of security in attachment to other things and there was a sense of fear that of course, if I let go then You know that that fear and dread of okay, what's this letting go about? And I always found that quite interesting, because it's a little similar to when 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 we say uh, uh, when when says, "Oh, you know, I I do nothing and nothing is left undone." It's it's in the contradiction, like uh, Mm -hmm. if you're not doing anything, how is
0: <laughs> well, uh, if the per- the person cannot be doing anything, but then, it, rather than action being guided by self-view and uh, and craving, it can be guided by mindfulness and wisdom. So there's things are getting done, but it's not a person that's that's doing them. It's not seen in a personal way. It's not held in that that that, uh, that, that form. So, no, so I think what you're talking about in terms of fear it's very much connected to the sense of self and that the, 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 the ego feels that it does have a control, it does own things. And, oh, if I let go, what will happen? Eek. <laughs> that uh, it's, in a way, a false sense of ownership, a false sense of control and that the, the degree to which uh, any individual can genuinely and fully affect the, the inner or the outer world is, is a fairly small proportion, I would say. At any one time, I mean, like uh, you know, I can't decide to float up into the air right now. we don't; none of us can do that, so that we don't think of it as a thing that we're not doing. (laughs) But it's it's conceivable that we could float up into the air uh, at this moment. So that that the 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 quality of fear is is closely connected to the quality of self, I-making and my-making, and the less there is uh, any kind of self-view or conceit, the less fear there is, and, that, uh, and, and the, the unknown from the, the, the point of view of the jitta, uh, free of self-view, uh, it brings with it a quality of wonderment rather than danger and fear. The, the, it's it's still the unknowing that there is not knowing what's going to happen or, or exactly how things work or what's going on, but the the feeling is the quality is that of wonderment rather than than threat. So letting go completely, then it's like that uh, that is uh, letting life be guided completely by mindfulness and wisdom, and you trust basically trusting in the Dharma and being Dhamma, you know, that uh, letting go of those personal habits and thinking of this life, this mind, this body in, in personal ways and just uh, letting the, uh, that the, the responsivity of, of this mind relate to the, the time, the place, the situation from that quality of, of wisdom and attunement. So, to continue... So, in the holy life, there is a lot of vibhava tana. I think Lumpur is again speaking from his own experience. We can live this life solely to get rid of things and to become something by getting rid of something. Notice then that the second noble truth is the realization that desire should be let go of, should be laid down. It's not a rejection of desire, but an understanding. You let it go because otherwise it's vibhavatana. It's the desire to get rid of desire. Know it, see it, but don't make anything out of it. If you're coming from ignorance, your desire says, I want to become an enlightened being and I shouldn't think like that. I shouldn't have the desire to become a Buddha. I shouldn't want to become anything. All that can, can be from ignorance, conditioning mental formations. The insight knowledge then is, desire should be, should be let go of. To say, we shouldn't be attached to anything, sounds very right. But that too can be coming from Avicapachaya Sankara. I shouldn't be attached to anything. is very much an affirmation of myself as somebody who is attached to something and shouldn't be that way, who should be otherwise. So, that's just a trap of the mind, not a real insight into Karmatanna, Bhavatanna, Vipavatanna. Reflect on what attachment is. If in fact you're just throwing things away, that's not the way to solve this problem. You're not really examining kāmatanna bhāvatanna vi so you won't have an insight into letting go. You'll merely take a position against attachment, which is another kind of attachment. So examine, look into attachment. This is working in a much more subtle and realistic way than just forming an opinion that you shouldn't be attached to anything. I remember a psychiatrist who lived in Bangkok who used to take somebody's wristwatch. The person would get upset and he would say, you're attached to your wristwatch. Then he would take his own watch and throw it away to prove he wasn't attached. He was bragging about this to me. I said, you've missed the point. You're attached to the view that you're not attached to your wristwatch. Throwing the watch away like a smart aleck and saying, you're attached, I'm not. I threw mine away. That wasn't letting go. There was a lot of self in it. Look at me, I'm not attached to these wretched material things. You can be quite proud of being non-attached. With reflection we see uh, attachment. and We don't have to get rid of things, but we can be not attached to them. We can let go of them, not by throwing them out, but by understanding the suffering from being attached. It's like the, uh, there's a, uh, an old joke. I'm not very inclined to telling jokes, but this is uh, one that's got a dharmic thread to it in in this vein, which is uh, various people um, uh, appearing in a in a temple and they're making their declarations about their spiritual aspiration. And the first person goes up and says, "I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm nothing." And then the second person goes up and says, says, well, I, I'm even less than nobody. I'm even less than nothing." And then the third person comes up and says, "You know, look who the thinks there's nobody. They're nothing. You know that uh, that uh, that I'm uh, I'm even less than these two guys put together." Like, so we can be proud about the the fact that I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm (laughs) worthless, and that uh, even that we can be inflated about our uh, our supposed humility. As you understand the peace of non-attachment, of letting go, the second noble truth leads to the third. When you let go of something, you're aware that there is no attachment to the five kundas. There's awareness that desire has been let go of. Then the insight into the third noble truth of cessation arises. Satchikata Bhanti. There is cessation. Cessation should be realized. As we realize cessation more and more, we begin to notice non-attachment. Not many of you are aware of non-attachment. You're usually conscious through being attached to things. A totally deluded human being only feels alive through attachment and desire and aversion. Contemplate that when you're not caught up in attachment to the five kundas, you don't feel alive. You're nobody. Having neurotic problems makes people feel interesting and alive. I have fascinating neuroses from all kinds of traumas in early childhood. So it's not sumato the urinator, it's sumato the interesting neurotic, the mystic, or sumato the abbot. These are conditions to which we can be attached. But realizing cessation allows you to let the self cease, there is uh, there is letting go. The realization of letting go is cessation. That whatever arises ceases, and cessation is noted. Cessation should be realized. So, there was one of the bumper stickers you'd see in the in the San Francisco Bay Area was, you know, "Why be happy and complete when you can be a brilliant wounded fragment?" Which is a, a little bit of a, a very short commentary on that. Um, how dramatizing the neurosis can be a, a very um, popular form of identification. But, um, yeah, not that people don't have genuine uh, neurotic and, and painful difficulties, but this is pointing to the fact that we can take that uh, being a brilliant wounded fragment and feast on that and make that uh, who and what we are, and that being ordinary and normal it can be really un- you know, unappealing. I've got I'm utterly average <laughs> and that uh, even having painful neurotic difficulties or, or uh, ancient injuries of psych- psychological injuries can in a strange way be far more attractive and appealing than, than not having those so our practice is one of realizing cessation that is when we talk about emptiness we realize the empty mind where there is no self There's no sense of the mind being anybody. As soon as you think of it as my mind, if you grasp that thought, you're deluded again. But even if you have my mind, quote-unquote, and see it as that which which arises and ceases, with non-grasping of it, then it's just a condition. There's no suffering from that. It's peaceful. So, this is pointing to the fact that the mind isn't really a person. We think of the mind, our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our memories. That in very personal ways but when it's examined with insight and particularly developing this insight into letting go then is recognized the mind isn't really a person that which knows the personal uh, qualities arising and passing isn't a person and uh, doesn't have to define what it is by attaching to any kind of personal quality when there is no self there's peace When there are me and mine, there's no peace. Worry and anxiety, what are they? They all come from me and mine. When you let go, there is cessation of me and mine. There's peace, calm, clarity, dispassion, emptiness.
2: Is Ajahn Sumedho talking about realizing Nirvana here? Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. There's peace. So that the um, in the Magga Sutta, uh, the Buddha um, says to be free of the conceit "I am" as Mimāna, That is nibbana here and now. And that's a f- uh, in Ajahn Sumedho's copy of the Life of the Buddha, Yanamoli's Life of the Buddha. That's uh, one of the the highlighted passages that he has. The uh, uh, that, uh, to see that the, uh, to be free of the conceit I am that's Nibbana here and now so to continue we've got five minutes I observe that when there is no self no attachment the way of relating to others is through the brahmaviharas, the divine abodes Metta, kindness, Karuna, compassion Mudita, sympathetic joy and Upeka, serenity These are not from a self or avicca. It's not that there's an idea that I must have more metta for everyone because I have a lot of aversion and I shouldn't. I should have loving-kindness for all beings. I should feel compassion. Sometimes I just want to kill everybody. (laughs) I should feel a lot of metta, mudita, be kind and joyful and sympathetic with people. I should be serene too. From a selfish person's point of view, the brahma-viharas are not the real practice the desire to become someone who has lots of metta and karuna and all that kind of thing is still Bhavatanha. But as the illusions of self fall away, this is the natural way to relate. You don't become a vacuous zombie through understanding the Dhamma. You still relate to, relate to each other, but through kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity, rather than through greed, hatred and delusion. What do unselfish human beings generally manifest in society? You could explain metta mudita karuna and upekaya's energies that manifest through unselfish human beings. Then apply that to your own practice now. When there is vijja, knowing and seeing clearly, that gives full opportunity for the practice of kindness, compassion, and the rest. But it's not me, not mine, not sumato the metta filled ajan, sumato the good guy rather than sumato the urinator. As soon as sumato delusions step aside and cease, Kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity can manifest. This is why the human state is a great blessing. When the self-view is relinquished, what remains is a great blessing. It's not me. I, quote unquote, am not a great blessing. All I can do in this conventional self is let go of delusion, be mindful and not get attached to things. See clearly, that's what I can do. That is the practice of the Four Noble Truths and the development of the Eightfold Path. It amounts to being vigilant, mindful, seeing things clearly. Then what happens is up to other things. There's no need to go around trying to become Sumato the good guy anymore. Goodness can manifest through this form if there's no delusion. And that's not a personal achievement or an attainment at all. Merely the way things are. The way it happens to be. It is Dhamma. And that's the end of that chapter. And again, I would say that's uh, one of the. Um, we we literally put that on a t shirt. You know, the mind is dumb; it's not a person. I think some of you got the t shirts earlier on. <laughs> but, uh, and that, uh, I feel, is a very helpful, um, liberating insight to end things on. And that uh, that also this is uh, when the uh, when the 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 jitta, the heart is free of delusion and metta karuna mudita peka those brahma vihara that's the, the the natural responsivity. That's how we relate to other beings and to the world when there's uh, no sense of self uh, distorting or cluttering up uh, the picture of things also this uh, when this uh, talk was when, back in the old days we had a tape library in the cassette tapes in the um, in the library, and uh, this one was uh, had the title "Sumato the Urinator," <laughs> and it was uh, probably the most popular of all the cassettes. You know, signed out from there. Okay. What? So it was. Um, I don't know if it still has that title <laughs> on the uh, on the. We've got? Yeah, you know, it's all online now, and all, all kind of uh, audio files. But I don't know whether it's still got that title. But back, back in the old days, that was. Um, a very, very popular set people signed up. Any final questions? Thoughts?
2: Sorry to ask another question. Very
0: good. There's
1: a chance. uh, um, The the, the last point where uh, say the mind is dumb and I was just thinking about the uh, the Buddha speaks somewhere else about the eternal Dharma, and uh, I was trying to connect that to say, as, uh, would would we then say that the the spoken word or the written word is not the actual Dhamma it points to the
0: Dhamma? Yes, exactly. Well, the the, the I don't think the Buddha uses the word eternal. More timeless, akaliko. Uh, Ajahn Mahabua, um, uh, one of the great teachers of Thailand, uh, he um, would use uh, uh, a term that that is more means more eternal. But um, uh, the 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 the, um, the word akaliko means timeless. So that that's one of the standard sort of attribute, classical attributes of Dhamma. Sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, you repeat in the chanting? The <laughs> so timeless Dhamma. Yeah, so that then that the words of Dhamma they, they point to that realization or they point to the way in which that realization can be embodied. So they're the uh, the pariyati, if you like the study and the, the actual realization is wordless and formless.
1: It is book uh, by uh, I where it's called We Are All Translators, where he says when we uh, come in contact with the Dharma we all receive it in different ways, and uh, that does it perhaps allude to that, to, to this timeless nature of the Dhamma, that it's, uh, it's more um, elusive, it's not really uh I, I, I think of uh, I think a common example that's given is of the moon. To say, well, if uh, someone is pointing at the moon, right? It, it, it is possible to see only the finger that's pointing at the moon, but not uh, then see the moon. Work. So, is is it a little bit? Similar. or am I trying
0: to connect things? To <laughs> well, I think you, you'd have to ask Ajahn Maninda to be. Uh, to, I haven't. I haven't read that book, so I couldn't. I couldn't be sure. But um, yeah. But what I've said in previous uh, these sessions is that you know, each of us have our own particular conditioning. That, you know, there isn't really one Buddhism. There's even in this room. There's probably thirty Buddhisms <laughs> and they they change all the time, so that. We uh, uh, the mind is always processing what it experiences through the filter of our language, our past experiences and so on and so forth and the uh, we can appreciate that there is that filtering going on and uh, take that into account and so that, well, the way I like to put it is that none of us experience the world we experience our mind's version of the world so you can't just make that sort of uh, conditioning go away but you can recognize there is conditioning so that you can appreciate that, um, that this is your your mind's representation that ha- the way things are and that it, it can't be the absolute reality in and of itself and so that that appreciation of, of what is appearing in terms of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought can only be an approximation, it's a best guess. And, uh, and then they, uh, there's a. Um, uh, in that way, then the, the mind is enabled to to not be looking for truth or substantiality or reality where it can't really be found. You know, it's a, it knows all this, what I'm seeing, it's a. It's a best guess of the visual cortex putting together the light that goes in my eyes and, and it creates this particular format um, but it, it it can't be the whole story it's It's an approximation, it's a best guess so uh, it's It's interesting to reflect on things like optical illusions or or when you, you you see sort of floaters in your eye. you know there isn't really an object floating around in the sky it's just it's actually a, a loose cell in my eyeball floating around it's, That's what that is. And so that that subjective nature of perception, then uh, it helps to keep that all in perspective because uh, problems come a lot from assuming what I think or what I feel and see and hear is absolutely true and valid and, and reliable rather than this is the mind's best guess or this is a, an approximation. And that uh, when we, we recognize... Um, that the way that we, the we feel and see and know things is just one version of it, it makes it much easier to appreciate other people's perspectives and that uh, we don't take our, our point of view as being defining reality, but you are much more able to appreciate where others come from and be respectful of that and attuned to that rather than, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> just because this is a thought in my mind and you think differently. Uh, therefore you must be wrong that it's a uh, that which is a, a sort of root cause of division so let's leave it there for today and for this retreat thank you all for your very good questions <laughs>